you've got your Bibles, uh, take them and turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Um, Psalm 19 is a a division between uh, God's revelation of himself in nature and then God's revelation of himself in scripture. And so let's pick up reading in verse 7 and and especially pay attention to verse 7 there. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. This is my comfort in my affliction. Amen. Please be seated. Over the past past roughly month and a half, We've been thinking about um, what we believe about the Bible. And um, as we think about what we believe about the Bible, we realize that, um, that the men who sat down and were fleshing out the Westminster Confession of Faith were, in some ways, saying some things that were dangerous to say just a century prior. And tonight we're thinking about, we, we've talked about the, the canon of Scripture, and we've, we've seen that between Protestants and Roman Catholics, there's disagreement about what constitutes the canon of Scripture. They include the Apocrypha. We've talked about the authority of Scripture and why the Bible is to be believed. And, and again, we find that there's tension and conflict because the Roman Catholic Church would say, you believe the Bible because we tell you to believe the Bible. And it would seem that tonight as we come to think about how Scripture is a clear document, that it is given to the people of God, and He intends for His people to read it and understand it, you would think that this would be a point where we would find agreement. But it is not so. One Roman Catholic scholar says this, and I'm going to use the word perspicuity of Scripture, perspicuity simply means clarity. He says the doctrine of, purpose, of the perspicuity of Scripture is an unbiblical, man-made tradition established to justify a very human and therefore very flawed plan for salvation. The fundamental Roman Catholic approach is to place the Bible on a very high shelf that you cannot reach. Inaccessible to the average Christian. It takes the church, and no, that doesn't include you, because the church is constituted by the Pope and the Cardinals, to tell you um, the, the, it, it takes the church that doesn't include you, it's the priests, the cardinals, and especially the pope, who are tall enough to help you reach that high shelf that the Bible is on. 
Although you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit in your confirmation, mind you, through which you are endowed, according to Roman Catholic dogma, with wisdom, understanding, knowledge, fortitude, counsel, love, and fear of the Lord, you're still only five foot three. And so tonight, even as we consider the clarity of Scripture and the Reformed and Protestant belief that every man ought to have the Bible in his own language, we realize that men who stood up for this doctrine paid for it with their blood. You and I have Bibles in our language because men had courage to say we believe the Bible belongs to God's people. And God's people is not just the learned and the educated. And as we, as we go through this and critique Roman Catholicism on this point, I was thinking about a quote from John Calvin. He said this, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. And then to quote Jesus from Matthew 8.26, are you still cowards? <laughs> what we find tonight as we consider what the Westminster Divines had to say about the, script, the clarity of the Bible, of God's Word, we learn that the Scripture's message of salvation is clear to everyone who reads it. And every Christian should consider it a holy joy to labor to understand the Scriptures since they are the counsel of our Father. The first thing that we want to wrestle with is something that we find that Scripture says that there are certain parts of the Bible that are obscure. Turn over with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Now this is... Sort of funny, and you wonder uh, if Paul at some point might have uh, sort of ribbed uh, Peter somewhere down the, the line for writing what he did, but uh, Peter makes sort of a, what we might have considered an embarrassing confession when he writes it. Let's pick up in verse 15. Um, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is 2 Peter 3.15. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. And notice what Paul, Peter says. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And some of you, if you've read through the, uh, the book of Romans, you come to some places and you say, what, what exactly does he mean by that? Or 1 Corinthians even, you say, what exactly does Paul mean? Well, here Peter is admitting that there are some things that are that, uh, in Paul's writings that are difficult to understand. And so, when the Westminster Divines began writing about the clarity of Scripture, they began by saying that not all things in the Bible are clear in the same way, and they're not all clear in the same way to the same people. And so we begin there by acknowledging that yes, there are some portions of Scripture that are hard to understand, and we don't just have that on our own testimony or experience, but through the experience of an apostle who said, 
I read some of the things that Paul wrote and I don't understand them fully. In fact, we know that Paul had to rebuke Peter on probably more than one occasion for his lack of understanding. So that's where we begin, that there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. But what we differ about is the reason they are hard to understand. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. So we begin that there are some things in Scripture that are obscure. They're not plain. However, most things in Scripture, we would affirm, are clear. What things are clear, do you think, in Scripture? Well, first and foremost, the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. God has clearly propounded in His Word so that anyone may take it up and read it and understand how to draw near to His God. And so this is what the Westminster Divines go on to say. The things that are clearly explained uh, are these things that are to be known, believed, and observed for salvation so that even a young child can take up the Bible and read it and and hear from the Lord his God. Who are they clear to? Well... Our Roman Catholic friends would say they are only clear to the church. And that means you need to rely on us to tell you what is the proper interpretation of your Bible. But the Westminster Divine said no. These things that are are to be known and believed and observed for salvation, they are clear to the learned and the unlearned. Did you catch that when we read Psalm 19.7? Did you catch that it said the Scriptures are able to make the simple wise? And it didn't add in there as long as he consults with the priest first. A special education is not necessary to understand and apply Scripture to your life. I remember having a conversation with some Mormons who came to my house about this very thing. Um, that they, they could not go back and read um, the Book of Mormon in its original languages. It had been lost to them, um, and they had to have somebody to explain it to them. This is not the way that God communicates with His people. Think about this. And we're going to talk about this in a second. But when God communicated the Bible, He gave it to His people in Hebrew. And when He communicated His Word in the New Testament, He gave it to them in Greek. Why? Because that was the language of the people. So we see, even in the evidence of God's providence, that He communicates in ways that we can understand. And consider the the promises of the new covenant. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah 31 as we look at one of the promises of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is talking about the promise of giving the Holy Spirit and the depth 
and the breadth with which he would work in God's people. That he would explain the truths of Scripture working in his people to help them understand. But we cannot deny, can we, that the Scriptures also say, they also indicate that certain people are gifted with better and deeper understanding of the Scriptures. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't discard that. Can, can you think of certain individuals within the church who might be gifted to, to know and understand the Bible? Well, your elders, for one. Your elders are gifted to know and understand the Bible. Well, why would we believe that our elders are gifted especially to interpret, understand, and explain the Bible? Well, because one of the qualifications for being an elder is that you are able to teach the Word. In other words, you can take something that is complex in Paul and break it down and disseminate it so that even the simplest are able to understand it. You can teach children. Titus and uh, Paul writing in Titus 1.9 says that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might do two things, give instruction and refute those who are in error. So we shouldn't say, uh, we should be comfortable saying, yes, we believe that God has gifted certain men to understand his word. But that doesn't mean for us that it is inaccessible even to the simplest among us. How, though, is the Bible clear to the learned and the unlearned? With due use of the ordinary means. What does that mean? When you sit down and you take up your Bible and you read it and you put words together and sentences together and paragraphs together, that is all that you need. That is all the skill that is required to understand the Word of God. Uh, think about this for just a second. When it comes to this topic, one of our favorite passages ought to be Paul going to Berea. Now, from a Roman Catholic perspective, this would have been the most uppity town ever because Paul preached to the Bereans. And you know what the Bereans did? They said, we, we understand what you're saying, Paul, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to go home and read the Bible for ourselves, and we'll come back and let you know if we agree with what you're saying. And do you remember what Paul said about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17? They're the most noble-minded people I ever met questioning an apostle. The scriptures encourage God's people to take up his word and to read it. And why? If the Bible is not clear, reading, using a due use of the ordinary means but to the learned and to the unlearned. You see, the serious error of Rome is what they do is they, they place the problem of understanding on Scripture rather than on you and me. But Peter would have said, he would have said, why, why is it hard for us to understand what the Scriptures are saying? Well, he would say, well, because, well, when we're fallen in sin... And the other thing is we have a finite mind and we're trying to understand the infinite. So, of course, some things are going to be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So the problem lies in the reader. Rome says no, the problem lies 
and the material. The Bible is inaccessible to you. They don't suggest that men work to understand the Bible. They suggest even with work, you will never understand because you're not part of the church. This is where the Protestant Reformation veered seriously away from Rome, even with reference to the clarity of the Bible. So let's talk just for a moment then about Scripture's clarity and English translations. Now, one of the things that we we know is that God inspired the Old Testament in Hebrew. And he, some of us seminary students wish that he hadn't done that, Um, learning to read from uh, right to left is not the most pleasant thing in the world. And he inspired, he inspired the New Testament in Greek. And so we assert that when it comes to differences of interpretation, we appeal finally to the original languages. And, and so we encourage that uh, everyone ought to pick up a Strong's Concordance from time to time or a, a Logos Bible app and, and try to look through the Greek from time to time to, to gain a deeper understanding of what the Scriptures said. But the inspiration of Scripture took place in the original documents in Hebrew and Greek. But we run into a problem Raise your hand if you can read Hebrew and Greek or even Latin. (laughs) Show off. Because so few can read Hebrew and Greek, it was the conviction of the reformers, and I'm going to give you a quote from a man who wasn't a reformer in just a second. It was a conviction of many men during the era of the Protestant Reformation that we ought to be translating the Bible into every tongue we possibly can. And so you think about the work of men like um, William Tyndale, who shed his blood to produce a New Testament in English because they had this deep conviction that the Scriptures belong to the people of God. And so the Westminster Divines, they give three or four reasons, that three reasons that we ought to translate the Scriptures into the common tongue. One, you have a right to them. Now, it's not often that you find the Westminster Confession of Faith saying that we have a right to anything. <laughs> but here, they remind us that the people of God have a right to the Word of God in their own language. Can you think why that might be? Well, because according to places like John 1 and Romans 8, you are a child of God, not a stepchild, not a cousin, not a nephew, not a niece. God is your Father. And just as a son has a right to receive the counsel of his father, so do you have a right to receive the counsel of your heavenly father. The second reason is that you have a vital interest in the word of God. Why do you have a vital interest in the word? Well, because you know that it is in your best interest, your best life, to borrow from another famous theologian, your best life is when you submit yourself, body and soul, 
to God's teaching in His Word. You have a vital interest. Your communion with Christ is by reading His words and taking them in and and letting them wash over you. And think about Ephesians 5. What does the godly husband do as the priest of his home? He washes his wife in the water of the Word. He doesn't go to the priest and say, can you wash her? She's kind of dirty. Thirdly, you are commanded to read. You are commanded to search the Scriptures. And so you ought to have them in your own language. Think with me for just a second about the conundrum we find in 1 Corinthians 14. Turn over there with me for a second. And as you're turning over there, I'll just remind you that through the Middle Ages and into the Protestant Reformation, you should understand that even many priests who were serving in local parishes didn't have Bibles, and had no biblical education. So they were enabled to believe that they were doing the right thing by uttering the Mass in Latin when nobody else in their community can understand it. Now look with me at a few verses. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 14.6. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, languages that you don't understand, How will I benefit you? Skip to verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? Verse 11. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So you see what Paul is establishing in the worship service is that it is for edification of every man. And if the people in the worship service cannot understand the words read to them, then it's not worship. It's not acceptable. And so the result, the reformer said, the Westminster divine said, of translating the Bible into the common tongue is that it enables men in every nation to do two things. One, to worship God in an acceptable manner, whether they are in South Africa or China or Budapest, wherever they are, they can worship God in an acceptable manner because they can appeal to the Word. They're not dependent upon superstition. And the second thing is that they are filled with hope. They're filled with hope. Not oppressed by the limitations of the knowledge of their local priest. And here I was going to give you an illustration. I, um, in, the, in the period of the Reformation, there was a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. And Erasmus never, he never became a reformer. He never officially left the Roman Catholic Church. Now he stirred some things up because he produced Greek translations of the Latin Bible that showed that some of the Roman Catholic Latin translations were incorrect. He showed, for instance, that uh, last rites was not biblical or acts of penance were not in the Greek New Testament. But he said this, even as not a reformer, not a Protestant, Erasmus said that this was his desire. I would have these words translated 
into all languages, so that not only Scots and Irish, but Turks and Saracens too might read them. I long for the plowboy to sing them to himself as he follows his plow, the weaver to hum them to the tune of his shuttle, the traveler to beguile with them the dullness of his journey. This was the zeal that stirred in the hearts of these men. They believed that the people of God had a right to the words of God. And behind that lies a conviction that the Bible is clear. Lastly, one of Rome's complaints, as we think about this fourth point that we ought to resolve Scripture's obscurity in Scripture's clarity. One of the complaints that Rome made against translating the Bible into the, the vulgar tongue or the common tongue was this. They said, if you do that, men are going to start reading it and misinterpreting it and misapplying it, and ultimately, you will lose the church. That's happened. Men, and, and th- remember, that was, that was Peter's warning. That men who are puffed up in themselves would, would take the hard-to-understand passages and they twist them to their own destruction. So we are reminded that we ought to carefully interpret Scripture, and I'll give you just a few things to consider as you apply yourself to difficult passages. Here's the bottom line. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Scripture interprets Scripture. This is a simple rule that helps us to be faithful students of God's Word. Scripture interprets Scripture. One of the hazards of Bible study groups is that we often will read a passage of Scripture and then ask this question. (laughs) Now what does that mean to y'all? And that's fine for the work of application. You and I want to to do the rigorous work of saying, how does this apply to my life? How am I going to flesh this out? But it's not okay for interpretation. Why not? Because it implies that every passage of Scripture has many different meanings. It has many different meanings. What if everyone in Sunday school suggests a different meaning for a passage? Is everyone right? No. We affirm that every scripture has only one meaning. Why would we we assert that so strongly? That every passage of scripture has only one meaning. We assert it strongly because every passage of scripture has only one author. Not many. Every passage of Scripture has been written by God. And so our aim in interpreting the Bible is to understand God's intent, not just what my gut might say. So let me give you two helpful rules of thumb as you interpret Scripture by Scripture 1. Always ensure that you determine the meaning of an individual verse in the context of the verses around it. Let me give you a favorite. Turn with me to Philippians 4.13. This is the high school football life verse. 
Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can simultaneously sack the quarterback and he can throw seven touchdowns because both of us can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so you've probably seen many examples of where this passage or scripture is used and you encourage a friend. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Go get him on that job interview. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what happens when we apply the context around that passage? Go back with me and let's review and read Philippians 4.10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Well, what kind of situation is Paul talking about? I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is I can endure any circumstance because Christ gives me strength to do it. Whether he gives me an abundance of food and money or I am running on empty and my stomach is empty, I can endure all those circumstances because Christ gives me strength to do it. That's how we apply the context of the verse to the verse. Another rule of thumb is that you ought to learn how to compare difficult passages of Scripture with clear passages of Scripture. Let me give you an example. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. Here's a favorite one for the really libertarian ones among us. Let's pick up and read in verse 26. 1 John 2, 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So some people will look at a passage like this and they'll even take Jeremiah 31, 34 and they'll say, look, I don't need a teacher. I, I don't need the church because my, here's a favorite line, my Bible tells me what, 1 John 2, 27, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Well, how do we, how do we resolve a passage like that? When we go over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, doesn't it tell us that when Christ was ascending up into heaven as a, conquering, as a conquering general, he gave gifts to the church, and those gifts came in the form of apostles, prophets, teachers, and elders in the church are able to teach. So immediately I know as I compare Scripture to Scripture that if I understand 1 John to be telling me that I don't need a teacher, but Christ gave a teacher, then I need to revise my understanding of 1 John 2.27 and go back to the context. We remember that it is not okay to leave Scripture in contradictory terms. Why, why should we not be okay with any seeming contradiction 
in the Bible because you're suggesting that God contradicts Himself. So all contradictions are only apparent. They are not real. And we have to work to resolve those contradictions. I would be dishonest if I said to you that in sitting in my office and preparing sermons that, that there are many weeks that I have to labor through passages of Scripture to ensure that I understand them so that I get up here and I teach what is faithful to the Word. And these are the principles that we fall back upon. We Scripture interprets Scripture. I don't interpret it by my gut. I don't uh, uh, lucky dip as some do to let my Bible fall open and point to a verse and say there's God's will for me. That's not faithful reading of God's Word. It's clear. And it is not to be abused. Look at the context. Compare Scripture with Scripture and interpret difficult passages in light of clear passages. The, the message the Scripture's message of salvation is clear to everyone who reads, the learned and the unlearned. And every Christian should consider it a holy joy to work hard to understand the Scriptures since they are the counsel of our Father. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank You so much that in Your divine providence, You caused Your Word to be set down. And not only that, but you have you set it down in a common tongue, or a tongue that was common in its day. And you've given to the church men who are able to, tra- to translate your word into our language so that we can read it. We can, we can sit down at any moment now and pull out a phone and, and have multiple translations of your word. What a kindness. But Father, I'm afraid it also reveals our own laziness when we fail to do the faithful work of of calling it a holy joy to work at your scriptures to to come at it like a a master a master sculptor with a chisel working to to peel away the layers to get down and understand the meat of your word and so we ask that you would you you would convict us to do that to spend time in your word and and to work at it until we are convicted in our heart of what you would have us to do or believe from every passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.